So today's Lunch and Learn from the Know Thyself and Know Thy Relationship series of HaChayim is called Olam HaFuch Ra'isi. Olam HaFuch Ra'isi is actually a quote from the Talmud. And let's talk about what the Talmud is saying. The actual words means an upside down world I have seen. Olam HaFuch, an upside down world Ra'isi I have seen. So, subtitles. Once one begins their inner journey, what we thought was them is actually us. It isn't him, her, I don't, I don't like. It isn't him or her, I don't like. It is me who I don't like. It isn't them who is holding me back. It is me. Wow, it's the man in the mirror. That's what went out in the invite. So let's start with the title. Where does it come from? An upside down world I have seen. What does that mean? The Talmud tells a story. There's a story of a certain sage who told his father that I had this peculiar dream last night. And what was the peculiar dream? Olam hafuch re'iti. That's where it comes from. I have seen an upside down world in his dream. Everything that's supposed to be down was up. Everything that's supposed to be up is down. Everything was hafuch, upside down. His father answered him, No son, olam kimin hago. You actually saw the world the way it runs. Now, that's the story of the Talmud. Hasidus and Kabbalah uses the story and it explains that what the story is telling us is that everything here below is a mirror reflection of that above. And you know when you have a mirror reflection, you're actually getting the reverse, right? Your right becomes the left, the left becomes the right, top becomes bottom, bottom becomes top. So that's what actually was happening. That's what they explained. And they say that everything that happens down here in the physical world is a mirrored reflection of above. One of the teachings I once learned in Chassidus, which is very beautiful, is that in this world, we actually put beams on the ground to hold up the roof. In the world above, where above is the foundation, they attach beams to the above to hold up the floor. And that's what it means, Olam Iti. We start bottom up. But the way things come down from above, it's the opposite. It's from above down. So, Olam Iti. Another beautiful explanation, not to do with this class, but another beautiful explanation, just to understand the Talmud before we get into what, why I borrowed this line from the story, is that one of the issues Hasidus has is the food chain. The food chain does not make sense according to Kabbalah and, and Hasidus. Because in reality, in the world of truth, the small has to nurture from the big, not the big from the small. And the food chain seems to be working backwards. So the plants is the one that's nurturing from the inanimate. The animals are nurturing from the plants. The humans are nurturing from the animals, which means that the food chain, according to Kabbalah, is backwards. The higher levels are nurturing from the lower levels. That's not the way it should be in the world of truth. That's why Hasidus explains what we just spoke about that everything is the mirrored reaction. The reason why the earth, the inanimate, is the lowest level down here is because it's the highest level up there, the mirrored reaction. They actually are, as, we're st- as, as it states, hakol afar. everything comes from the dust. The power of reproduction, everything comes from the dust. And God said to the earth, you shall give forth. Animals, where did the animals come forth? If you remember the verse in Genesis, it says that God told the earth it shall sprout forth animals. Where did the human come from? He's called Adam because he came from Adama. 
So actually the source of everything is the earth. Ah, if so, why does that look the lowest level? It seems to be lifeless compared to the plants that at least grow, compared to the animals that at least are mobile, even beyond growing. And yet the answer is Olama Fuch Re'iti. It's the reflection. So that's where the Gemara and the story of the Gemara comes from. With that being said, I want to share with you why I borrowed from this. Today's lecture is actually a play of this story and its teaching. Why? Because in truth, if not for the actual quote that I'm borrowing, I would have named this lecture differently. The lecture should have been called Inside Out. Everything that we see outside really is inside. And I'm talking about in relation from us to the others. What we see in the other actually is what's within us. So that's really where this is going to go, okay? But I borrowed from that Gemara story to understand that what seems to be top is bottom, what seems to be bottom is top, what we're going to explore today is actually what seems to be outside is inside. And that's what we're going to talk about. Okay, I do want to share with you one more thing before we get into the uh, meat of this uh, lecture. Usually, you'll see in my notes, which I publish after I finish, um, delivering it, that on top there's always base primarily on, and it usually gives you the name and address, quote-unquote, of a mimer, a Hasidic discourse. I didn't do that this time. I actually focused on teachings and stories of Hasidus that bring out the bird's eye understanding and the practical guide on how to deal with this journey. Okay? So it's not based on a mimer. You're soon going to see, I'm going to list over here a joke, a story. Okay, so let's begin. We're going to give a peek inside. I just heard this great joke. I'd like to share it with you. It actually, I just heard it this week. This person went to the doctor and he told the doctor everything is hurting. And he showed the doctor, you know, when I take my finger and I touch here, it's hurting. When I touch here, it's hurting. I touch here, it's hurting. On and on and on and on. And the doctor told, after checking up this person, he said, actually, there's nothing wrong with you, but you do have a broken finger. So wherever you're touching is hurting. Not because of everything is hurting, your finger is hurting. So, why am I sharing this joke here? The point of the joke for today's lecture is that the finger is the checker, right? He uses finger to check. And that finger was checking and passing verdict and deciding if everything or anything is hurting or not. And what the finger did decide was everything is hurting. Goes to a doctor, the maven, and what does the doctor tell him? No, everything is just okay. It's the checker that's got the problem. We sit in the center of our universe and we judge other people. And I don't even mean judge in a nasty way here. I don't mean in a derogatory way. It's just we have opinions of people in our relationships. And what I'm suggesting here is, like I wrote in the subtitles, that we will eventually see that it's going to go so far to realize that the resentments we have against people may actually be resentments we have against ourselves, And that's what we're going to explore today. It's not everything and anything that's hurting. It's the finger that's broken. So that's a joke. Now let's move on to a story. The story is from the second Lubavitcher Rebbe, the Mitzvah Rebbe of Dover of Lubavitch. It is the normal practice of Rebbe's in Chabad that they take what they call Yechidis. Yechidis comes from the word Yachid, alone. You're alone with the Rebbe. 
Yechidis has started from the Alter Rebbe, the founder of Chabad Lubavitch, and the Alter Rebbe would allow people to come in and they would reveal to the Alter Rebbe their spiritual ail ailments, asking for tikkun, for something they did, and even more so, they would be asking for guidance on how to deal with certain spiritual challenges. And when I say spiritual challenges, that includes anger management, if that's their tikkun of their midot, their attributes, emotions, um, whatever it may be, davening, studying Torah, focusing, um, learning to be happy with what you have, and so forth and so on. So the Alter Rebbe, uh, the Middle Rebbe, I'm sorry, the, his son, Rabdov Ber of Lubavitch, the second Lubavitch Rebbe, was sitting in his office, and traditionally they would do it at night. And that would be an all-nighter, and the next morning the Alter Rebbe's would come to prayer like nothing happened, going on. Uh, the Rebbe in 1950, when he first started, was actually three times a week. And his mother-in-law, who was the Rebbetzin of the previous Lubavitch Rebbe, when he saw what, he, what the Rebbe is doing, he actually complained to Chassidim, how can you let him do this? Yechidis, she knew firsthand from her husband that Yechidis takes a huge effect health-wise on the Rebbe because we're soon going to see that the level of connection and caring and where it comes from. But either way, back to our story. So it was a night of Yechidis. The Middle Rebbe was accepting Yechidis, people coming in a private audience, and all of a sudden, the, the, the Middle Rebbe ordered the uh, Gabai, the one who stood by the door, to close the door. That the, He locked the door. Yechidis is stopping, smack in the middle of, and by the way, people come with appointments, you don't just show up. So it's stopping, smack in the middle, the Rebbe is stopping to take Yechidis, the Chassidim are sitting outside, they're wondering what's going on, and all of a sudden they hear, from inside the Rebbe's office, they're hearing that the Rebbe is saying Tehillim with heart-wrenching tears and sobs. Okay. They started getting nervous, what is this about? Did the Rebbe see a spiritual decree? Well, you know, they all started saying, tell him, they all started crying, you see your Rebbe crying. And afterwards, after a, length, a decent length amount of time, lengthy amount of time, the Rebbe reopened his office and he's continuing with Yechidis. One of Chassidim asked the Rebbe that Chassidim were extremely frightened when we saw that all of a sudden, this unusual behavior, the door is closed and you're not taking Yechidis no more. The Rebbe stopped taking Yechidis. And imagine what happened when we heard the sobs and the crying and the praying. And the Rebbe said, I'll tell you what happened. The person that came into me, into my office to speak to me, Yechidis, right before I shut the door, asked me for a tikkun of a very, very grave sin. Chassidim know what the sin is. And... What happened was that for me to help, this is what the Rebbe says to the Chassid, for me to help, I must find the other person's sin within myself, albeit on a much more refined level. It's not physically manifested as the other person, or he wouldn't be a Rebbe and a Tzaddik. But on some spiritual level, it has to exist. I have to find it within me. And after I find it within me, from there, I can help the other person with his tikkun and what needs to be done. When this person asked me for tikkun for this grave sin, I searched within myself. Where does it exist within me? I couldn't find it within me. All of a sudden, I realized that maybe because the sin is so deep within me that it's in a stage of denial that I can't even see it. And that's when I closed the door and started saying to him, praying to Hashem, doing teshuva, 
to find it within myself and rectify within myself until I finally found it in a refined stage within me. Once I found it in a refined spiritual stage within me, I was able to reopen the door and continue Yechidus. There's many points to this story. We're just going to take one point for today's lecture. The point of this story for us today is the simple understanding of the Rebbe that if someone brought to me a sin that they're doing and I need to see it within them in order to do tikkun for them and help them and guide them and give them a path of teshuvah, then I must realize that it exists within me. And if it doesn't exist within me, if I don't see it within me, then there's a problem. Because if I, it wouldn't be within me, then it wouldn't have been brought to my table. I can't connect with it. So the story that I'm sharing with you is just right now, there's many other points to the story, but the point I want to borrow from this story for our topic today is see how far it goes. A holy righteous tzaddik who's being asked for tikkun and guidance of issues throughout the entire gamut from the most refined to the most grave of sins. And yet the Rebbe's simple approach is that if I am to see this in another person, it exists within me. Okay, that's the story. So I shared with you a joke, I shared with you a story, and now let's continue a little bit what goes on with this story. The Talmud says, a ruling, a blemish which exists within you, do not say it upon your friend. The Baal Shem Tov actually has a very interesting teaching. The only reason, this is what the Baal Shem Tov says, the only reason why you see the sin within the other person is because it exists within you. Were it not to be within you, you would not see it within the other person. Now, let's go back to a very famous story in the Chumash, in the book of Genesis. Let's talk about Sodom. What was Sodom's most grave sin? Sodom's most grave sin was that they abhorred very strict rules, very harsh punishments to anyone that brought guests and hosted guests. And their, their simple logic was, once we start hosting guests in such a beautiful place, everyone's going to start coming here. Every night we're going to have people knocking on our door. We don't want that. That was their sin. The verse actually says that Abraham, God told Abraham that the shouts, the screams have reached me. And actually it says it in the feminine sense. And why? The Medrash tells us that they caught a girl that did host someone, fed them, and the likes, and they punished her by hanging her um, smeared in honey so that the bees would sting her to death. So that's what led to the demise and destruction of Sodom. Who was Avram Avinu? All of us that went to Cheder, we went to Kipri school or anything, we know that what is the famous arts and crafts we do when we talk about Abraham was the tent with four doors. Why does the tent have four doors? Because Abraham's tent had four doors so that guests can come from all sides. What was Avram's major focus in life? Love and kindness. God refers to Abraham as Avram Ohavai, my beloved, my lover, Abraham. 
And what happens? So here is the absolute antithesis. Abraham is all about chesed, kindness, bringing guests. Sodom is all about never allowing that to happen under strict persecution. And God tells Abraham, he reveals to him, I've had enough. I'm going down to judge them and to destroy them. What would you expect Abraham to say? What was Abraham's response? Simply, if I was the author of this story, the knee-jerk reaction I should write into the story is, oh God, it's about time. What does Abraham really do? Abraham starts arguing with God. Read it right in the Chumash. If there's 50 people, if there's 45, if there's 40, if there's 30, if there's 20, if there's 10, Abraham's not stopping to fight for Saddam. How can that be? The answer that I'm sharing with you today and the theme of today is that only Abraham, who did not have anything of the fault of Saddam, was able to see past the fault of Saddam and was able actually to be their defense attorney against, quote-unquote, God. Now, I don't mean against God, but against God's ruling that he's going to destroy. So only Abraham, who was completely clean, absolutely clean of Saddam's fault, was able to see past Saddam's fault and argue with God. Anyone else that would have the slightest selfishness within themselves would not have been able to see past Saddam's fault and would have responded by, it's about time, God, that nasty place, they're so cruel. That I'm sharing with you from the perspective of what's going on with the Baal Shem Tov's teaching. Any fault that you see in the other is because it exists in you. Were it not to exist in you, you would be able to see past it in the other. Step one. Step two, it also is connected to the teaching of the, of the Talmud. The blemish which is in you, do not say upon your other. Very simple. Were Abraham to have had that blemish, he would have set it upon Sodom, magnified it upon Sodom, and be rejoicing within their destruction. I want to even go so far as go back to the story of the second Lubavitcher Rebbe. Because the second Lubavitcher Rebbe had to see within the other person that grave sin, had to see with, so he can help him, be there with him, walk him out of it, what I'd like to suggest is that the Rebbe had to find it within himself. Were he not to find it within himself at the most sublime and, and refined level, he would not be able to see it within his chassid. Were he not to be able to see it within his chassid, he would not be able to help him. Not from the inside out. Okay? Now that I've shared with you a joke and a story, I want to share with you a lesson. I was privileged to be on the board of Hillel Community Day School. While I was on the board, just recently, I was uh, on two terms. While I was on the board, we had different workshops training us as board members. 
One of those workshops was given by the past headmaster, Dr. Adam Holdham. He, he, I learned something from him. He taught me something which was really amazing that I'm going to share with you. He did it in hands-on way. I'm going to just give you the point orally. The nature of water. What does water do? What happens to water when you throw a rock into the water? It ripples. The whole point of this workshop was to figure out why does the water ripple? There are three components in this scenario. There's the thrower, there's the rock, and there's the water. Taking us through a process of elimination, which went something like this. Well, it can't be the rock, because if I threw a rock against the wall, the wall wouldn't ripple. If it was about the rock, then no matter what you throw it against, it should ripple. Through that form of process of elimination, we come to learn that the only reason why water ripples when you throw a rock into the water is because it's the nature of water to ripple when rocks are thrown within it. Okay, let's talk about this for today. So too it is with us. We react the way we react, not because of the thrower and not because of the rocks. But rather, those of us who react in the way we react, it's because it is our nature to ripple when people throw rocks in our pond. Why is this so important? Why is it so important? Because we learn something extremely important when we decide we've had enough. We don't like the way we feel, the way we behave, when we ripple. So we decide we're going to change that. When you follow this experiment, you immediately realize that there's only one, one of the components that I could and should change if I want to change the rippling effect. And that is I must choose to react differently. I must choose a different nature of how I'm going to react when people throw rocks into my pond. So what really happens here is that conventional wisdom would say, what we all do, is the minute we're fed up with the way we ripple, we blame the thrower, we even blame the rock. What we're learning here today is that it's not about the thrower, it's not about the rock. The only, the only component it's about is me and the choice I make of how I'm reacting. So what we're really learning here is that the only thing we could do is to change the rippling effect is own responsibility. Now I want to share with you something. Were I to remove the thrower and remove the rock and say, ah, now I won't be rippling no more. What we're going to learn today is that if I remove the thrower and I remove the rocks, it won't help because by law of attraction, I will be attracting another thrower and another rock. 
Let's share something very interesting. I want to share with you an insight from the 12-step program. It's called Always Own Your Responsibility and Your Power. In the 12-step program, one of the steps, they speak of making an amends list. We make a list of all those that we have hurt and harmed because of our addiction, and we make amends where it is possible and appropriate. One of the steps. The next step is after you make the list to actually do it. I'm reading now the book of Melody Beattie on the 12 steps for codependency. She speaks of this step to make three lists, not one list. Simply speaking, this step asks for making one list of all those people that we have harmed that we need to make amends to. She speaks of making, she speaks in the book of the 12 steps for codependency to make three lists. Number one is for all the, all the people that have hurt me. Number two, second list, is a list of all the people that we have hurt. And the third list consists of only one person, ourself. What, what intrigues me is why would we make a, an amends, a list, and then actually follow up and make amends to those who harmed us? Especially since Melody Beattie deals with codependency. Isn't that typical codependency? I'm going to apologize to the person who harmed me. And the answer that she offers there is that we need to own responsibility and our power, our power for what we participated and maybe even attracted in the situation. So here's a, here's a situation where someone harmed me. Someone embarrassed me. And the way she presents this step, making the amends list and actually following through and making amends, she presents it as, first list is who harmed us. That's the first list we're going to need to make amends with. But why? Why would we make amends? So here's something I want to share. Fundamental rule in abuse recovery, recovering from abuse. The first rule that really is so important is that we need to accept that power can never be taken. Power must always be given. That's a huge, huge statement. Let's follow through what that means. What that actually means is that if I'm accepting that in every single case where a person is abused, God forbid, not only was there abuse, but for the abuse to take place, someone, the abused, had to give the power. So, Interesting what we're saying here is that in the process of recovering from being uh, an abused person, we're going to have to accept, own up our responsibility and our power which participated in that situation. That's a very, I would say, controversial statement. But look how far it goes. 
What I'm actually saying is, let's go back to the entire theme of today. It isn't about stopping the abuser. Because when you're going to try to stop the abuser or get rid of this abuser, what you're going to end up doing is attracting, participating, giving your power to another person who's going to be right there to abuse you. It is very interesting to note that for every abuser, there's an abused person. Even more interesting to note is that I would say, I can't say every, so let's say 99.9% .9 of abusers are always dead on in picking the abusable. So if the abusable wants to go into recovery and all they're going to talk about is how I have to get not be in this relationship with abused people, what actually has to happen is you need to make an amends list and you need to own up responsibility and participation in the abuse that we suffered from. That is an amazing enlightenment of the 12 steps. Let's go further. A question that was one presented to me. We were talking about a certain individual. Um, a guy witnessed something. The, the details aren't important. A guy witnessed something and he told me how he reacted. He witnessed to uh, basically a woman being abused by, uh, by her husband. A certain, some, some act that was abusive. And she turned around to him and said, you see what I have to deal with? And he went and looked at her and said, and when he told me what he said, I heard him not only talking to the lady, I heard him talking to me that every human being, including myself, and primarily myself in my life, has to ask this question. So I want to tell you the question he said. What is it about me? What am I saying? What am I doing that makes the person think that they can do that to me? What an awesome question. Notice that there was absolutely nothing in that question that asks anything about the abuser's behavior. The entire question, rather, only asks about the abused person's behavior going back to that step or the 12 steps owning responsibility and owning your power what am i doing what am i saying how am i behaving what is it about me all the questions was i me what am i doing and that's why she says that in the real step of making a list of making amends, one has got to, we have got to, make a list of the people that hurt us. Because if we're really to change, it's not about just our participation in harming others, but primarily it's our participation in letting others harm us. Owning that allows us to own our power 
and then we can change. Okay, let's go even further. Ultimately, who are we mad at? I'm going to share with you that when you work codependency steps, you eventually realize that you aren't upset at the other person. At first, you're horribly upset at the other person. Resentment, you can't even remain in the relationship. This is, it's, 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 you can't, it's terrible. But ultimately, when you get past that initial part of working codependency, who is the only person you're really, really mad at? Who's the only person you really resent? So I'll share with you. When you allow yourself to act, to react and to ripple, you get really angry only at yourself. I want to quote to you what someone says to themselves when they really are upset. Ah, uh, why did I react that way? Why did I let myself be affected by what the other person is doing? Once again, there is nothing in these two questions that is aimed at the doer. Both these questions are aimed only at ourself. Why did I react? Why did I allow what the other person is doing to get to me? So yes, ultimately, the resentment isn't about the other person. The resentment is toward ourselves. And we need to make amends. We need to get past the resentment because the rule, resentment is an addict's poison. So I keep on using the word addict, but there's, this is not just about addiction or maybe otherwise said everyone's an addict at some place. So ultimately, it isn't about the other person at all. It is about ourselves. Now I want to take it a step further. Why? Why, if we're resenting ourselves, do we project it at the other person? We know deep down it's not the other person I'm resenting. The other person is disposable. It's me I'm resenting because I'm not disposable to myself. What I want to share with you here is that the reason why we resent the other person is because we see in the other person ourselves in one of two ways. In the positive way, when I say positive here, what I actually mean is as in photography, positive and negative. Positive would be a carbon copy. Negative is the exact opposite. You know that you look at the negative of a picture and it's the exact opposite of what the picture looks like. What's dark is light, what's light is dark. Let me share what I mean. The abused person sees in the abuser the negative copy of him or herself. What they're seeing in the abuser, which makes them resent so horribly the abuser, is that they see that they are abusable. That's what the real resentment is all about. And the path of recovery is getting over the resentment to thyself, owning responsibility, owning power, changing that, I am not abusable. Very often in parents and very often in with children, we actually see the carbon copy effect. 
My sister, she's living be well, once told me something beautiful. The child, which is most like your partner, is a battle of wit. The, part, the child that is most like you is a battle of will. We struggle most often with the child that is most like us because we see in that child the carbon copy of ourselves. So the resentment here again is not about the other. It's actually the fact that the other is a carbon copy of yourself, ourself. And thus, ultimately, the resentment is about ourselves. Okay? That is why, that is why, going back to the story of Abraham and Sodom, Abraham had no resentment to Sodom. While anyone else that would have within them the slightest selfishness, this is mine, why do I need to share with you? You have yours and I have mine. You stay on your side of the fence, I'll stay on my side of the fence. Anyone that has the slightest drop of that, the person that sits by the Shabbos table and like, do I really need so many guests? When are they leaving? Guests are like fish. When it stays too long, it starts to smell. You know, all those things. That person, even though he's in no shape or form like Sodom, but because there is a piece of that within him, he can't do what Abraham did. He can't see past. The resentment of self is reflected upon the resentment of other. And he can't argue with God on behalf of Sodom. Avram Avinu, which had no resentment of self, Avram Avinu was kind. Avram Avinu was the infinite embodiment of kindness. He had no resentment towards Sodom. He's going to deal with Sodom, just like he dealt with the rest of the world, teaching them monotheism, teaching them to abhor human sacrifice, so forth and so on. He'll teach Sodom. But he has no resentment that stopped him from wholeheartedly arguing with God in defense of Sodom. So, in closing. In closing, practically speaking, people, all journeys of blame speak about the other, while all journeys of recovery speak about ourself. I'm going to repeat that. All journeys of blame speak about the other, while all journeys of recovery speak only about ourselves. This lecture is about the journey of recovery. It is all about owning responsibility and with it, only with it, owning our power. So what we've seen here today is clearly understanding that what we see in the other, the resentment towards the other, even in an abused relationship, the resentment we have towards the abused is really all about the resentment of ourself. How many times do we hear and see a frustration between a male-female relationship where one says, how does she always or he always do that to me? And they know they can do that to me. And I hate that. It's all about me. My problem is me. Because if they couldn't do that to me, I wouldn't have a problem with it. 
So what we discovered here today is that really olam hafuch ra'iti. What I think is on the outside is really only a reflection of the inside. And to change my environment, to change my situation, to change the rippling effect, it's really all about changing thyself. And changing thyself begins primarily with owning responsibility and owning our power. And that's why it is crucial what Melody Beattie Spo talks about. It is crucial that in the first list of amends, we actually make the list of those who have harmed us. And being able to find ourselves, our responsibility, and then our power in that list, making amends for our participation, our enabling, our what's the word I'm looking for here? <laughs> what we did, what we attracted. Then when we own that responsibility, we make amends to that responsibility, then we can own our power, we can move on. That's for today.